0: to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I feel the liftoff, the clock has started. Roger. In got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is a new and strange environment at first, This suddenly finding yourself in orbit. We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. I'm going to step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful. Discovery, go at throttle up. Nose gear touchdown. Having fired the imagination of a generation, a ship like no other, its place in history secured, the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time. Its voyage at an end.
1: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 5 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Escaping the Reich. In 1912, Werner von Braun was born in Wiersitz, province of Posen, then a part of the German Empire, and was the second of three sons. He belonged to an aristocratic family inheriting the German title Freiherr. His father, a conservative civil servant, Magnus Freiherr von Braun, served as a minister of agriculture in the Federal Cabinet during the Weimar Republic. His mother, Emily von Kistorp, could trace her ancestry through both parents to medieval European royalty. Von Braun had a younger brother also named Magnus Freiherr von Braun. After von Braun's Lutheran confirmation, his mother gave him a telescope, and he developed a passion for astronomy. The von Braun's hometown, Flavesic, was transferred to Poland at the end of World War I as part of the Treaty of Versailles. His family, like many other German families, decided to move back to Germany. In 1920, his family settled in Berlin, where the 12-year-old von Braun was inspired by speed records established by Max Vallier and Fritz von Opel in rocket-propelled cars. Radio commentator Paul Harvey tells the story of how a young von Braun's interest in rocketry almost got him labeled as a juvenile delinquent. At the age of 13, von Braun exhibited an interest in explosives and fireworks. His father could not understand his son's consuming interest in so dangerous a hobby. He feared his son would become a safecracker. One day, the young teenager obtained six skyrockets, strapped them to a toy red wagon, and set them off. Streaming flames and a long trail of smoke, the wagon roared five blocks into the center of von Braun's family hometown, where they finally exploded. Von Braun was taken into custody by the local police until his father came to collect him. One of von Braun's other interests was music. He became an accomplished amateur musician who could play Beethoven and Bach from memory. He learned to play the cello and the piano, at an early age, and originally wanted to become a composer. He took lessons from composer Paul Hindermitt, and the few pieces of von Braun's youthful compositions that are still in existence are very reminiscent of Hindermitt's style. Beginning in 1925, von Braun attended a boarding school at Estersberg Castle near Weimar, where he did not do well in physics or math. A turning point came in his life when he acquired a copy of Hermann Oberth's book titled By Rocket into Interplanetary Space. The book gave von Braun a new enthusiasm to understand math. He applied himself at school until he led his class. In 1930, he attended the Berlin Institute of Technology, where he joined the German Space Flight Society, also known as VFR. He assisted Willy Ley in his liquid-fueled rocket motor test in conjunction with Airman Oberth. Also, in 1930, von Braun attended a presentation given by Auguste Piccard. After the talk, von Braun approached the famous pioneer of high-altitude balloon flight and stated to him, You know I plan on traveling to the moon at some time. During this time, von Braun was greatly influenced by Oberth. This is what von Braun said about Oberth. Hermann Oberth was the first who, in thinking about the possibility of spaceships, grabbed a slide rule and presented mathematically analyzed concepts and designs. I myself owe to him not only the guiding star of my life, but also my first contact with the theoretical and practical aspects of rocketry and space travel. A place of honor should be reserved in the history of science and technology for his groundbreaking. Contributions in the Field of Astronomics. In 1932, von Braun graduated from the Berlin Institute of Technology with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. His early exposure to rocketry convinced him that the exploration of space would require far more than applications of the current engineering technology. By the fall of 1932, Walter Dornberger arranged a research grant for the Ordnance Department for von Braun who then did research at a small development station that was set up adjacent to Dornberger's existing solid-fuel rocket test facility at the Kummersdorf Army Proving Ground near Berlin. Also in 1932, von Braun entered the University of Berlin for graduate study. He graduated with a Ph.D. in physics in 1934. By December of 34, von Braun's group had successfully launched two rockets— that rose vertically to more than 1.5 miles. But by this time the civilian German Space Flight Society had been forced to disband. The only way for von Braun to continue research was through the military. Also, the test grounds near Berlin had become too small. A large military development facility was erected at the village of Pinemunde, in northeastern Germany on the Baltic Sea, with Dornberger as the military commander and von Braun as the technical director. This is where the A-4, which became the V-2, was developed. By 1944, the level of technology of the rockets and missiles being tested at Pinamunde was many years ahead of that available in any other country. And now I want to cover the controversy that plagued von Braun through the second half of his life and still tarnishes his legacy Nearly 40 years after his death. In 1937, shortly after being appointed to his post at Peenemunde, von Braun officially joined the Nazi Party. This is how von Braun explained it to the U.S. Army 10 years later. In 1937, I was officially demanded to join the National Socialist Party. At this time, I was already technical director at the Army Rocket Center at Peenemunde. The technical work carried out there had, in the meantime, attracted more and more attention in the higher levels. Thus, my refusal to join the party would have meant that I would have to abandon the work of my life. Therefore, I decided to join. My membership in the party did not involve any political activity. Michael J. Newfield, the author and chief of the Space History Division at the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum, wrote this about Von Braun. Von Braun, like other Pinamunders, was assigned to the local group in Karlshagen. There is no evidence that he did more than send in his monthly dues, but he is seen in some photographs with the party's swastika pin in his lapel. It was politically useful to demonstrate his membership. As for his attitude toward the National Socialist regime in late 1930s and early 1940s, There can be little doubt that he was a loyal, perhaps mildly enthusiastic subject of Hitler's dictatorship. When the Fuhrer, going from success to success, eliminating unemployment, tearing up the Versailles Treaty, rearming, reoccupying the Rhineland, and then in 1938 absorbing Austria and the Czech Sudetenland without war, there is no doubt that the regime, but above all Hitler, had become immensely popular. Von Braun, being a German nationalist immersed in a military environment, doubtlessly found much he could like about those accomplishments, and little reason to be disturbed, especially in view of how much money had been poured into his beloved rocketry as a result of rearmament. Years later, in 1952, Von Braun admitted that he fared rather well under totalitarianism. In 1940, von Braun became an officer in the Waffen-SS, which was not an armed unit. But the SS were responsible for most of the atrocities committed in the Holocaust. This is the explanation von Braun gave the U.S. War Department in 1947. In spring 1940, Colonel Mueller from Greifswald, a bigger town in the vicinity of Penamundi, looked me up in my office and told me that Reichfuhrer SS Himmler had sent him with the order to urge me to join the SS. I told him I was too busy with my rocket work that I had no time to spare for any political activity. He then told me that the SS would cost me no time at all. I would be awarded the rank of Lieutenant and Himmler was insisting that he accept his invitation to join. Realizing that the matter was of highly political significance for the relations between the SS and the Army, I called immediately on my military superior, Dr. Dornberger. He informed me that the SS had for a long time been trying to get their finger in the pie of the rocket work. I asked him what to do. He replied on the spot that if I wanted to continue our mutual work, I had no alternative but to join. As with von Braun's party membership, we have no truly independent account of what happened, but his story is believable. Von Braun's feeling for the regime may have changed when he was arrested. Listen to episode 4 if you want to hear that story. Now that we have explored von Braun's background, let's turn our attention to the surrender of German scientists at the end of World War II. Although modern rocketry research had been established in the United States prior to the end of World War II, certainly the greatest impact in modern U.S. rocketry occurred when the bulk of German rocket scientists surrendered to U.S. forces. With the Russian army closing in on Peenemünde from the east in 1945, it became obvious to Werner von Braun and his staff that things were coming to an end at the research center. In late January of 45, von Braun met secretly with his senior staff members to decide whether or not to remain at Penamunday and eventually be forced to surrender to the Soviet forces or head southward to meet and surrender to the U.S. forces. By this time, the SS had taken direct command of von Braun's staff and von Braun worried that SS General Hans Kammler might possibly use the scientists as a bargaining chip to save himself or have the scientists killed to keep them from being captured by the Allies. By this time, the German war effort was crumbling and the German military leadership was showing a state of confusion. Official orders for von Braun remained vague. He had received several contradictory orders from Berlin, local army and navy commanders, the SS, as well as Nazi party bosses. According to von Braun, He had ten orders on his desk. Five promised death by firing squad if we moved, and five said I'd be shot if we didn't move. To top it off, a rumor was circulating that the Russians were approaching fast from the south, which would soon cut off their escape route to surrender to the U.S. Army. If the scientists and engineers remained at Pinamundé, they would either be killed in combat or taken prisoner by the Russians. Neither of those prospects were very appealing. Here is a recording of von Braun describing his situation.
0: Three months before the war ended, we could already hear the Russian guns in the distance. I had, uh, if I remember correctly, something like 10 different directives coming from various ministries and agencies in Berlin and other places as to what to do in front of the, in the face of the approaching Russian army and about 50% says you stay right here and you will help us defend Pomerania and everybody reaches for the fire axe if he doesn't have a gun, you know, and so forth. And the other half of the orders or, uh, said uh, uh, your work is so important to the military and we want under no circumstances the secret information to fall into the hands of the Russian army that we want you to, ev- to evacuate the place to central Germany. And so I had my pick. And I did, right in the midst of Nazi Germany, a very unusual thing. I called a hideaway meeting of my main associates, and we had an election. We voted where to go, whether to stay and take these five orders, or whether to move and take the five others. And uh, there was a unanimous resolution, let's move out, and let's move to the West, and try to get rolled over by the American army rather than the Russian army. Now, the logistics of this was not quite that simple because we were, of course, in the, uh, in the back of a retreating army with uh, refugees and refugee treks and uh, uh, logistics supplies for the fighting army forces still moving east and so forth and all uh, private traffic was blocked and so we we virtually had to bluff our ways with um uh, faked up priority orders and so forth through this confused line but we finally managed to get about three uh, three train loads and about a hundred trucks full of equipment out of pene into central germany when the war finally ended i was in bavaria and wound up in the hands of American troops, just as planned.
1: In order to achieve the objective of surrendering to U.S. forces, von Braun and his staff chose to obey one of the ten orders that involved a relocation of the Pinemunday operation to the town of Blakenrod in the Harz Mountains, to bluff their way through the maze of military roadblocks and Kastapo checkpoints along the route. They equipped all the rail cars, automobiles, and trucks to be used in the evacuation with a blazing red and white sign reading, Project for Special Disposition. Of course, the designation was completely fictitious. Von Braun managed to evacuate tons of sensitive documents, as well as 5,000 employees and their families. In February, after a dangerous trip of dodging Allied planes and bluffing the Gestapo and the SS, they finally arrived in Bleckenrode, where the Armament Ministry in Berlin had directed the rocket research work to continue. As luck would have it, SS General Hans Kammler, who had earlier tried unsuccessfully to assume control of the rocketry research at Pinamunde, was in command at Bleckenrode an area which included several concentration camps. Concerned about Allied reprisal for being in charge of concentration camps, Kamler devised a plan to hold von Braun and his colleagues hostage at the end of the war. On April 2, 1945, Kamler issued an order to move von Braun and 500 key personnel to an empty army camp near Überammergau in the Bavarian Alps. This area had been designated as a final retreat for German forces. Von Braun became suspicious of this move and convinced the SS to allow his personnel to be housed outside the barbed wire fences to prevent being captured all in one place, as well as to protect the group from a bombing attack. Von Braun's group was widely dispersed throughout about 20 villages in the area. General Dornberger eventually joined the group as well. Word reached the group on April thirtieth, 1945, via radio, that Adolf Hitler was dead. The timing couldn't have been better because this was just a few days after the von Braun team had settled in the area. This prompted von Braun to finalize his plans to escape to the U.S. forces. Von Braun eventually surrendered to the U.S. 44th Infantry. This is how the infantry recorded the surrender. It was deep in Austria, and with the swift collapse of the German army, a flood of civilian and Weimacht personnel came pouring through the Aline mountain passes seeking to surrender. Suddenly a young German came to members of the anti-tank company, 324th Infantry, and announced that the inventor of the deadly V-2 rocket bomb, was a few hundred yards away and wanted to come through the lines and surrender. The young German's name was Magnus von Braun, and he claimed that his brother Werner was the inventor of the V-2 bomb. Private First Class Fred Snykert of Sheboygan, Wisconsin, an interpreter, listened to the tale and said just what the rest of the infantrymen were thinking. I think you're nuts, he told von Braun, but we'll investigate. Then a hectic night of interrogation plans and counter proposals followed as the Germans, even in defeat, tried to act like big shots. Quote. After screening key von Braun personnel, a decision was made to move von Braun and about 150 of his staff to a more secure location. This group was moved to a captured German army barracks at Garmisch Partenkirchen where they remained for several months. General Dornberger was of no value to the Americans. He was turned over to the British. Eventually, Dornberger was tried and acquitted of war crimes for the V-2 Bombardment of London, where he spent two years before being released to the U.S. Eventually, he became vice president of the Bell Corporation. Even though the Americans were slow to react to Magnus von Braun's surrender, Top U.S. intelligence officers and their British and Russian counterparts were well aware of the importance of locating the German rocket scientists, rocket research, and the actual rockets. With von Braun and his associates' assistance, the U.S. Army arrived at Mittelwerk first and were able to capture about 100 V-2 rockets and the bulk of the rocket research papers. This and 117 of the best German rocket scientists were taken to the U.S. It turned out to be one of the greatest technical prizes of the war. When Stalin found out what had happened, he was outraged. Somehow the U.S. had managed to take the best German scientists right out from under the Russians' nose. An official press release from the U.S. War Department explained the reason for taking the German scientists' Quote, the Secretary of War has approved a project whereby certain outstanding German scientists and technicians are being brought to this country to ensure that we take full advantage of those significant developments which are deemed vital to our national security. Interrogation and examination of documents, equipment, and facilities in the aggregate are but one means of exploiting German progress in science and technology. In order that this country may benefit fully from this resource, a number of carefully selected scientists and technologies are being brought to the U.S. on a voluntary basis. These individuals have been chosen from those fields where German progress is of significant importance to us and in which these specialists have played a dominant role. Throughout their temporary stay in the U.S., these German scientists and technical experts will be under the supervision of the War Department, but will be utilized for appropriate military projects of the Army and Navy. End quote. It's interesting to ponder how post World War II history might have been far different had the Russians been able to capture von Braun and his team.